All right, uh, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, first, uh, for last week, I apologize for the coughing and the hacking, so hopefully that wasn't too much of a distraction. Um, I didn't realize how bad it was until I got here and started talking, and then it was just like I felt like I couldn't stop. But uh, thankfully, that's, I've gotten over that. If you remember last week, we did we asked that question, how do we reconcile uh, the fact that the Bible on one at one passage will say that God is unchanging, that he does not change his mind. And in other passages, uh, it, for instance, Malachi 3 says, it says, it talks about, I'm the Lord, I, change, I don't change. And then we, so that's talking about God's immutability, that God does not change. He doesn't grow, he doesn't diminish, he doesn't learn, he doesn't forget. So he doesn't change for better or for worse. Uh, it's the doctrine of immutability. But, in other passages, we hear God changing his mind, God regretting. So we wanted to first just kind of reconcile how we, how these two ideas fit together. This, of course, has nothing to do with the lesson. But we brought it up last time, so I wanted to kind of wrap it up. Uh, for instance, so in Genesis 6.6, 6, we read, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth. So it seems to be implying that there was regret uh, on on. The place of God. In Exodus 32 14, it says, The Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. So, there, we have an actual explicit reference to God changing his mind. And we just said that God doesn't grow, diminish, learn, forget. He doesn't change his mind. Uh, so, you know, this, how do we reconcile these two ideas? So, Samuel 15 11, it says, I regret. That I have made, I have made Saul king. So another area we have an explicit reference to God saying, "I regret that I made Saul king." So how do we reconcile these two ideas? That on one hand, God it says God is immutable; He's not changing; He doesn't grow. But on the other hand, uh, all these explicit passages where it talks about God changing His mind, uh, that that kind of thing. So how can we say? Uh, these seems to be contradictory passages. But on the other hand, we're saying we, we have a kind of foundational belief that Scripture has one system of unified truth, non-contradictory unified truth. So we have to figure out some kind of answer. There. And so that's really that, the reason I'm bringing it up, the reason I'm kind of pushing this issue, making sure it's clear in your mind, because it's, it's important to understand that if Scripture has one, it's, it's a unified uh, body of truth that it follows from Genesis to Revelation, then when we find if we find instances of passages that seem to contradict each other, we need to figure out how they fit. Because if it's contradictory, then the Bible doesn't have a, a system of unified truth. But if we believe it does, then there's somehow there's a, there's, a, there's a way to work this, reconcile these ideas. The change that we're talking about in these texts deal, deals with God's dealings and uh, and relationships with changing people. So that's the key. So God isn't changing, but people do change. So how does a unchanging God deal with or be in relationship with people who are changing? He's unchanged, but that he but those he deals with are changeable. God's manner of treating people changes. His orientation towards people changes when man moves into a different moral relationship. And so that's the key. So if God if God is unchanging and the people are, it's when God, those people who are in relationship to God change uh, the moral relationship. Uh, God's decree, for instance, his uh, judgment. Uh, if we remember the book, book of Jonah, 
if you're familiar with the book of Jonah, God pronounces uh, uh, woe or you know a curse on the Assyrian people, but he also allows there for some kind of change in that relationship. So God's decree of judgment there carried with an unspoken but always present contingency that is a secondary means to an ultimate end. So basically, if, when God is dealing with people, uh, his pronouncement of judgment, for instance, always carries with it an unspoken opportunity for repentance. And that's the key to understanding that. So is that clear? Is it at least any questions about that? I know it doesn't have any connection with what we're, we're going to talk about today, but I just want to make sure we understood what, uh, what we're getting at there. Uh, okay, so we're actually moving on to what we're trying to cover today. is chapter 3, and we're looking at the topic of confession, confession of sin. What page? Uh, sorry, the 24. <clears throat> so in chapter 2, we talked about this family relationship that people have God's people that believers have with God. That if you are a child of God, that family relationship cannot be broken. And that was the last chapter. That is, you can't lose your salvation. This chapter we're dealing with now daily communion with God. So on one hand, you have this family relationship with God. And on the other hand, you also, as a believer, have this uh, um, communion, daily communion with God, which actually can be effective. So even though you can't lose your salvation, sin can uh, affect your daily communion with God. And so there's that little diagram there at the top of 24, talking about the family relationship with God, and that's represented by the unbroken, thicker line, and then that daily communion with God. And we'll flesh these ideas out as we work through the lesson. So committing sin, 1 John 2, 1a. And I have that, I'll read that one to start. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So what is God's desire regarding us and our sin is that we don't do it. God's desire is that we do not sin. And according to the second part of this verse, 1 John 2, 2, and 1 John 2, 2, God makes a provision, a plan, B, for when we do sin. And if we read that it's talking about that... We have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ. So, If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we have an advocate there with the Father that is Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 8. Uh, if someone could read that, someone in, uh, who has a Bible handy. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Thank you. So, though anybody, Christian or non-Christian, who claims to be without sin is that we actually are deceiving ourselves, according to 1 John 1.8. So, basically, do not make light of your sin, although Scripture teaches that you will struggle with sin. And it does, that's an important thing to remember. So as Christians, we do struggle with sin. It also indicates that you will be sinning less and less as you grow in in the Christian faith. So 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So someone who has been saved is a new creation. A new creation. 
And that last part of the verse, let me read that again. The old has gone, the new is here. So basically talking about our old nature has gone away. We now have a new nature. We now have the capability to actually obey God, which we did not have before. And someone who who genuinely has been saved is a different person. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I'll read that one. It's a little bit longer passage. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will inherit the kingdom of God? Will not, excuse me, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what, and that is what some of you were. So he's talking to believers. He's saying this, this is the kind of lifestyle you guys live. And he's being honest with them. This is, this, these, this list is where you guys were living. But you have been washed. Continue on to verse 11. You have you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we have a list there dealing with sexual immorality, idolatry, drunkenness, thieves, greedy, slanders, swindlers. So a lot of that having to do with how our, our relationship to other people, dishonest in our relationships with other people particularly. So what does the Bible say of them after their salvation? It says that they were saved. Or excuse me, they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified, using legal language there. As a Christian, you will struggle with sin. So that's an important idea to remember. You will struggle with sin. However, if you continue in the same sin as though you were never saved, the Bible calls into question whether you were ever legitimately saved. So that's an important thing to remember there. If you continue in the same sin as though you were never saved, that's one part you want to emphasize and remember. The Bible then calls into question whether you were ever legitimately saved. So that little footnote here is the part that's important to pick up there without focusing on the Greek is that it talks about continuous action. So these words address habitual sinning, a lifestyle of sin, and not not the normal struggle with sin that is common to all Christians. So a lifestyle, habitual, uh, constant sin dealing with it that you are just engaged in. Any questions on that or any discussion? So the Bible teaches that you will struggle with sin until your death. So it's not something that at some point in your Christian battle, at some point in your life, that you all of a sudden will become sinless. How to win battles with temptation will be covered in a later chapter. When you lose the battle with temptation and sin, you are still saved. However, there are some serious consequences of sin, and we'll move through these uh, pretty quick. So the first consequence of sin is that you offend God. And what David says in Psalm 51, uh, 4a, is that his sin was ultimately against God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. So, remember what David's talking about there. He's talking about a sin that he had committed with another, against a man with his wife. He committed this sin. But ultimately, it wasn't the man that he was dealing with there. He was actually dealing with the fact that his sin ultimately was against God. What is First John 1.5? Can someone uh, read First John 1.5? This is the message we have heard from him. And declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. 
So what do, what do you guys think that means? God is light and in, in him there is no darkness at all. No sin. No sin. So there, he can't, there's no sin. He can't tolerate sin. There's nothing in him uh, that is sinful or evil or wicked. So why is God offended by sin? Because sin is not just breaking a rule. It is breaking God's, God's rule. And according to 1 John 3, 4, whose law do we ignore when we sin? And that's God's law. So 1 John 3, 4 deals with God's law. And this is an important question, the next one. What is the law referred to in that verse? When we talk about, in 1 John 3, 4, when he's talking about the law that has been broken, <coughs> what, what is the law? God's word, anything God commands. So, in a general sense, anything God commands is God's, God's law. Absolutely. Are you talking about Old Testament? Well, that's what we're trying to get because 1 John, he's actually addressing a specific topic. So he's dealing with a specific um, iteration or aspect of God's law. And what are we talking about with God's law there? Is it God's general? Is it everything that he decrees? Everything he says for us? Is it dealing with the Old Testament law? The Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Which is, you know, a summation of, of God's law in the Old Testament. Any other ideas what we could be dealing with when we refer to God's law here? His standard. His standard, His right. standard of what we should be doing. Correct. So that's kind of, well, that's kind of like Jenny's saying. So it's, it's a, again, God's standard for his people, actually for everybody, right? Because God has one standard that he expects from all people. Can someone read John 13, 34? 34, 35. Yeah, 13, 34, and 5. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the law that John is dealing with, and because we know that, that we're dealing with the Gospel of John, which is the explanation we, we, we just saw, and the first, the letter of John, what John is specifically talking about there is the law of love. The law of, of love. Not the Mosaic Code, which in other places, when we break God's law, that's actually what we're talking about, is the Mosaic Code. But here, what John is referring to, when we break God's law, we break God's, the law of love. That is loving other people. Because what does he say there at the end is that everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that needs to be, you know, it's an important aspect of God's law, of what God expects from us. So a second serious consequence of sin is revealed in Psalm 66, 18, and that is God will not hear our prayers. So 66.18 says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So a lifestyle of sin, having sin, the issue in your life means that God will not listen to your prayers. You will have that broken fellowship with God. As we stated earlier, a Christian's sin hinders their daily communion with God. You don't need to be saved again. A child who disobeys their parent is still part of the family, but communication is hindered until the child confesses his disobedience. So we probably, some of us have encountered something like that with our own families. 
You, know, you get you get an argument with your parents. You know, maybe if you're a parent, you've had this issue with your kid. I know I had this problem with you know I I was a bad kid growing up, so I had this constant going on with my parents. You know, you, you, the relationship is still there. So you're still the child, but you can. There's an effect on that relationship when you do something to break your parents' uh, the rules. And then a, a third consequence of sin is discipline from God, and that's going to be obviously fleshed out here larger. So, first consequence is that you sin, you offend God. Second is that we have broken fellowship; that is, God will not hear our prayers. And third is that we will uh, receive discipline from God. So Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 is the classic passage on discipline for sin. So some Bible versions use the word chasten or correct. The human relationship parallels our, excuse me, the human relationship that parallels our relationship with God is the father-child dynamic here. (coughs) Hebrews 12, 5 through 7, and I'll read it. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord's discipline, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. So a, a relationship with the father and the child. According to verse 6, the emotion, the emotion that motivates God's discipline is love. And so that's an important part to remember. It's the same thing that should be motivating our discipline towards, uh, if you are a parent, towards your child. Should be. I mean, sometimes it's just crazy kids. But there's always love, right? It should always be love. Uh, so how does that be? How can, the, the next question, explain the above answer. How can that be? How do you explain that God disciplines us out of love? Why would why is love a motivator for discipline, either as a parent or God's relationship with us? Why why is how can that be? Because discipline means to teach. Right. And what is uh, the end goal there? So you're you're looking to teach, but so as a teacher wants to teach a, a student, so there has to be some kind of different. A different dynamic and either what you're trying to go do or what you're trying to um, why love is the you know an important uh, motivator I guess you know a, a good teacher will probably love have a certain love for their students as well so I shouldn't just eliminate that so I don't mean to cut you off if you want it no that was my big insight. <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> well, it's it's I'm, it's there is a, a good there's a relationship there as well. So that's uh, any other ideas on how why it's important that love is that motivator? Why the the link between love and, and discipline? He's not maliciously disciplining us, so he's doing it for our own good. Yeah. So that's the important part really, is that God is not being arbitrary, God is not being capricious, he's not being vindictive, he's not like the the little kid with the magnifying glass burning ants, right? He's not just like doing things to be, which I, you see what the kind of stuff I did. Uh, he wants what's best for us. As a parent wants what's best for your kid, when you discipline your kid to stay out of the street, 
and they break that rule and you have to discipline them. You want, you, because you know, you have insight that the child doesn't have. You tell your child, don't engage in this. You know, you don't stay out past a certain time if you take the car. You know, you may say that or you may have been on the receiving end. And then if you broke that rule, you got disciplined for it. It's because your parents knew well, there are certain things that can happen if you're out late. The kind of, you know, what, what is going on on the roads late, right? So they have insight and they're worried that what's best for you. <clears throat> they want you to grow up to reach your potential. And so that love is an important motivator there. Verses 7 through 8 deal with what is the true, what is true of someone who continues in sin but is never disciplined. So someone who has never been disciplined as, uh, of their sin, it means that they're illegitimate. They're not legitimate children of that parent. A parent, any kind of legitimate relationship means that there's discipline. Verse eight, verse eight makes sense. You you may discipline your own child for disobedience, but you don't discipline a stranger's child for doing the same thing. Discipline proves that you are God's child and is a very serious test of genuine salvation. <clears throat> Verses nine through eleven. Although I guess you can push that because I think back, you know, if you talk to people of an older generation, people would. Adults would discipline anybody they saw. Of, of, you know, if they saw a kid doing something wrong, they might have disciplined that kid. Nine through eleven. God does not discipline us for His pleasure, as Morgan pointed out, but He does it for our good. Verses ten and eleven. The two goals for God's disciplining of His children are that we would grow in holiness and righteousness. Now dealing with the topic of conviction of sin. The word conviction means proof of sin. Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of someone who has sinned. So the Spirit convinces you of your sin. According to Ephesians 4.30, what does your sin, how does your sin affect the Holy Spirit? Can someone read Ephesians 4.30? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Excellent. So what are we dealing with when we talk about what does that mean? Obviously it saddens. And why should that motivate us? Because of that relationship. Because we know that 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 discipline or or the the relationship is defined by love. It's the same reason why, you know, you're saddened uh, I think as an adult. When you you know you look back on some of the, the things that maybe you've done with your parents, why you're sad because you realize the love that was there, and that by grie- grieving the Holy Spirit, you're grieving God. And you can be sure of this: when you sin and grieve the Holy Spirit, He will grieve you back. So what does that mean? He makes you uncomfortable. He makes you uncomfortable about what we've done. One of the clearest instances of such conviction in the Bible comes from King David in Psalm 32. In the first two verses, he speaks of the happiness of someone who has had his sins forgiven. Why does he state that forgiveness brings happiness? Because he knows by experience that sin brings misery to a believer's heart until it is confessed and forgiven. So how did David describe the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin in Psalm 32, 3-4? He describes it in a way that it's like a... Here, let me read it. When I kept silent, my bones 
wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped in the heat of summer. So it's an exhausting weight, an unrelenting pressure that the Holy Spirit's conviction made him feel. David, David literally felt sick because of his sin. Thankfully, he responded to conviction by confessing his sin in Psalm 32.5. And then this uh, box here, the import, is, it's, as it says at the very end, this is a model prayer for Christians. So it's good to work through these things. And if you're struggling with how, what to say, then you know, these kind of things can serve as a model for you. Top of 27. It is essential that you understand the difference between conviction and condemnation. Satan wants Christians to feel guilty so that they will be useless for the Lord. What is Satan called in Revelation 12.10? So in Revelation 12.10, Satan is called the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Depending on your version, we have the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser. So Satan accuses you before God. But Christ is your advocate. So we read in 1 John 2, 1 there that Christ is our advocate. However, Satan also accuses you to your, of, excuse me, to yourself. He wants you to doubt God's forgiveness. He delights in reminding you of sin and making you feel guilty. So that's important. That's an important term. He wants you to doubt God's forgiveness. <coughs> and he wants to bring up that sin constantly, that sin that you've already confessed. That he wants you to make you feel guilty. So perhaps you have experienced a feeling of guilt when you have sinned. If so, you are experiencing God's conviction, and it will continue until you confess and renounce your sin. However, if that feeling of condemnation lingers, even after you have confessed and renounced your sin, it is no longer a work of the Holy of God's Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. And then we have this chart, which is uh, a good uh, kind of summary of the two the differences. And you can see conviction is a work of God. So it's God's work. And conviction, conviction. the goal is to bring you back. So we see that in the second box on the left. Conviction urges you to return to God. So the, the point of conviction originates from God, and the, the goal is to bring a sinner back. It's to call you back. And it ends the moment you confess, because the, you were restored at that moment, at that moment. So the important there is that it ends, God's conviction ends because you've been restored to fellowship with him. Whereas, on the other hand, condemnation is a work of Satan, and it wants you to run away. So we have, on one hand, the calling back of sinners to God on the left, but on the right, that same second line on the right, condemnation, which is a work of Satan, actually wants you to give up. It wants you to run from God, to push you away from God. And then condemnation continues even after you confess. It wants you to destroy you. It wants you to bring up that sin, to constantly bring it before your eyes, constantly, and make you want to give up, to destroy you in your walk with God. So conviction of sin is only a means toward an end. God's ultimate desire is that you confess your sins to him because he wants to to have that fellowship with you. So what promise does God give to Christians in 1 John 1, 9? So 1 John 1, 9 God is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us. He's faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us. The word confess means to admit, to acknowledge guilt. Many people believe that confession 
is something done before a priest. So I'm sure we all heard that, or even, you know, the media even picks up on this. You know, confess to a priest. However, biblical confession is a matter between the sinner and God alone. Look at David's definition of confession in Psalm 32.5. So 32.5 says, When I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So he says that the acknowledgement of wrongdoing, that is acknowledgement of sin, is, is in other words, confession to God. So he is, or his acknowledgement of sin is to God. And so what is the opposite of this confession from this verse? He says, uh, he did at the end of the first part of verse 5, did not cover up my iniquity. So the opposite of confessing your sin would be to cover it up. And as we said, the David acknowledges his sin to God. So the word confession may cause you to think of going to a church or to confess your sins to a priest. Yes, scripture instructs you to confess your sins directly to God, not to man. Why? Why is that? Because you have ultimately, you have sinned against God and not man. Because only God can forgive your sins. But importantly, because you don't need to go between in the first, Tim, excuse me, in the words of First Timothy two five, Paul's words to Timothy as he's getting ready to charge Timothy to take over the church in Ephesus, he tells Timothy, "There's one mediator, or reminds Timothy, one mediator between God and mankind, that is the man Christ Jesus." And I think one point that we want to make sure is clear, though, is we, it's important that ultimately our sin is confessed to God and only to God. But if you wrong somebody, you still have to confess that sin to that person. You can't just neglect actually repairing that relationship. Because what is we talked about with the, the passage in John that we read. God's law is that we love each other. And by not confessing, not going to that person and not seeking forgiveness from that other person, there's a, there's a problem there. In fact, what does Jesus say? If you have uh, an issue between you and a brother and you're at the altar... He says, what does he say? Leave and go. Leave your gift at the altar and go take care of that issue. So it's important. On one hand, we have to confess. We don't confess. I don't confess. If I've done something wrong, for instance, I stole something. Or um, I mistreated somebody. I wouldn't go to Bill and say, Bill, I've, you know, I stole this thing from the store. He'd be like, okay, which, thanks for telling me. You know, Why are you coming to me? That's the sin you go right to God. But if I... Uh, said something evil about Bill and I've been talking about him to everybody, I have to go to Bill and confess to him. And then I still need to confess to God. But I have to ask for Bill's forgiveness in that case. I haven't said anything about you, Bill. (laughs) Another verse... That's not what I heard. We will talk after that. Another verse which deals with confession of sin is Proverbs 28.13. What it promises to someone who conceals sin is they won't prosper. The one who conceals sin will not prosper. And it's kind of a, it's a rhetorical understatement. So it's a, it's a literary device there that the, the psalmist, 
or excuse me, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, is using that, just saying that they will not prosper. It's kind of an understatement. It means that they won't, nothing will work out. You know, God will bring it about that the one who uh, tries to cover up his sin won't get away with it. God will uncover it. It was a rhetorical understatement there. So we compare, compare the previous answer to David's experience in Psalm 32, 3, 4. His experience in Psalm 3, uh, 32, 3, and 4 is that he felt weakened. He, dra- he was drained physically, mentally, spiritually. And then pro- returning back to Proverbs 28, 3, 2, excuse me, yeah, easy for me to say. Proverbs 28, 13, the two things that someone needs to do in order to find mercy, confess and renounce. That is, renounce that sin. You know that conf- what confesses mean, but what does renounce mean? Why is it necessary? What is renounce? What if, for those who, who knows what, or who can summarize what we're talking about there? When I say you renounce something, what am I talking about? To do the opposite of that sin, to do good in place of it, or to turn away and go the other way of it. Yeah, exactly. So it's the turning away aspect of of, of uh, uh, forgiveness. So, uh, forsake, for, renounce equals forsaking. So, and this fits this theology of forgiveness. So, on one hand, you have confession of sin. On the other hand, turning away from sin. So, when we, we seek repentance to, from God. We turn and confess to God, but we turn away from our sins. It's the idea of turning 180 degrees. And that's the forsake. That's the renounce aspect. So we compare the end of Proverbs 28.13 with Psalm 32.5. God's promise to the person who confesses sin to him is forgiveness. God has said that your sin will hinder your daily communion with him until it is confessed. With that in mind, sin should be confessed immediately and specifically. And this is, this is an important idea. So we're not doing general confession here. You know, I, forgive me, I, I messed up. And then moving on. It's specifically dealing with specific sins. <clears throat> a good rule to apply is be as specific when you confess your sin as, as you were when you committed the sin. Deal with them individually as soon as you become aware of them. And I think it's a good practice because it's, it can be painful to do that. You're, you're recalling to mind the specific ways that you you've know that you've let God down. So as you rehearse those in your mind, it's a good way to reinforce and maybe try to break that habit, to deal with that sin by bringing it to mind. Bringing godly sorrow. What does God promise about forgiven sin in Hebrews 10, 17? Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So that's what he says in Hebrews 10, 17. Their sin and lawless acts I will remember no more. In Micah 7, 18 in 19, he says, he will hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. So using metaphor there to, do, to highlight what, how God will treat that once we forgive our sins. Psalms, Psalm 103, 8 through 14. <clears throat> how do these verses describe God? So let me read it. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve 
or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how they are formed. He remembers that we are dust. So how do these verses describe God? It describes him as compassionate, as gracious, as abounding in love. And he doesn't hold a grudge. Deals with us on the basis of grace. So grace is the basis on which how, how God relates to us. He is a father to his children. I joke with Lisa, you know, sometimes I say where I grew up, I grew up in the city of Berea, Ohio. And I say, we, you know, we were famous in Berea for holding grudges, the old Berea grudge. We, we don't let things go. So, <laughs> unlike that. So that's, that's not how God deals with people. So what does God say about forgiven sin in Psalm 103, 12? It says that he has removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. Literally in the Hebrew, it's, it's from the sunrise from the sunset. So how is God described in Psalm 86.5? He's described as forgiving and good and abounding in love. So the last several verses teach that God is eager to forgive you when you sin. Yet many Christians refuse to confess their sin and therefore their daily communion with God is hindered. You want to confess your sin as soon as you become aware of it. Don't let unconfessed sin accumulate. Rather, you want to make it a life pattern to keep short, uh, sin accounts, short sin accounts with God. So we always kind of cover the three, and this one actually kind of summarizes. So you want to make sure we understand these, these three points here at the end. Although you're a Christian, you still have a sin nature. You were born with a desire to sin, and that desire continues in you until your death. So we're not going to be free from sin. We're going to have that sin struggle until we die. Sin, but that sin can't remove you from God's family. You won't lose your salvation, as we talked about in the last chapter. But it does have an effect on your daily relationship, daily communion with God. It breaks that communion that God wants to have with us, that God has saved us for. So God brought us to him. He saved us so that we can have that daily communion with him. And so our sin actually will affect that. When you sin, you must confess that sin to God immediately, and specifically. So that's something they keep hitting in this. Immediately and specifically, God will then forgive you. Short lesson today. Uh, as always, you know, try if you can remember, go through the material and get try to get it to a point where you can actually explain it to someone else. You never know when you'll have an opportunity to cover this kind of topic, when you'll have a chance to discuss it with someone else. So, uh, you know, get it down until you can actually... Uh, discuss it or sh- and talk about it with someone else. Any other any questions on anything? We have some time, so if anybody anybody has a question or any pushback, otherwise, we're done. Short class. Oh, uh, let me pray and close this in prayer. Uh, Lord God, we, uh, we just thank you. We thank you for your love and mercy. We thank you that uh, you saved us, that you desire communion with us. We thank you that uh, 
we have an advocate with you that uh, we have Jesus Christ uh, pleading on our behalf Lord, we we pray that uh, the lesson would uh, affect us in a way that we would seek to deal with sin quickly and directly with you as soon as it, we have the, the opportunity that Lord we would make our relationship with you a priority in our lives that you would uh, be pleased with our our thoughts and actions that you would draw us closer to you day by day in Jesus name we pray